coming up on the Front Page Football Podcast. Myself, Jake Holub, Cody Ajada. We tried not to fanboy in this podcast, but Mitch Duke, the man who gave us such a wonderful memory against Tunisia at the World Cup last year, for an exclusive interview uh, about an hour or so this podcast. And uh, yeah, we just talked a lot about uh, that World Cup campaign, but also the Matildas at the moment and the Women's World Cup got his thoughts on on what's going on, of course, um, with Australia beating Canada uh, earlier this week and now advancing to take on Denmark in the round of 16. Of course, Mitch and the Socceroos know a thing or two about playing Denmark at the World Cup. But on the Women's World Cup, uh, our women's football experts, Cody Ajada and Matt Olsen, tomorrow they're going to have another edition of this podcast uh, looking and basically reviewing uh, the group stage of the Women's World Cup and looking ahead to the knockout stages. So make sure you stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, pumping out the podcasts we are. But uh, Mitch Duke is our latest guest and he's on right after this. Welcome back to another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast. And today, uh, I'm joined, first of all, uh, by Cody Ajada and Jake Holub, who are going to join me on the podcast today. Cody, we'll start with you. How are you going? Yeah, doing good. Just enjoying the Women's World Cup. I've been to seven games so far. It's been a pretty good time so far, actually. It's been really good. You were you were right behind that Marta Cox free kick last night, weren't you? I'm telling you now, I've never had a better angle of a goal in my life. That was something truly special. And also joined by Jake. Jake, how you on? I'm great. I'm great. It was a lovely middle of the front page football boys. Came down to Melbourne uh, to to catch the game. And what what a game it was in the day. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get tickets for it, but the 4 win over Canada, that was, uh, yeah, it will be, it'll be an iconic moment for uh, Australian football. Absolutely. Um, and another man who joins us, and uh, speaking of iconic moments in Australian football, he certainly produced uh, produced one last year. It is none other than Socceroo striker, and now he can correct me if I pronounce his club name wrong here, Makita Zelvia, Ford, Mitch Duke. Mitch, welcome to the podcast. Very, very grateful to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to having a nice chat, and it's Machida Zelvia. Machida Zelvia. There we go. Knew I got it wrong. All right. Um, so, Mitch, actually, I'll just get started because uh, the boys just spoke about the Women's World Cup there. Obviously, you know, you're in Japan and we're here in Oz where it's happening. But um, from afar, have you seen things played out? Um, have you been following it closely? What, what's your overall thoughts? Yeah, I've mainly been tracking the Matildas. Unfortunately, uh, the accounts and stuff that I have over here in Japan, it's very hard to keep track of the Women's World Cup. So I'm doing it via Optusport and VPN kind of stuff. Um, and I don't get the best connections with some of it, so it, get, it becomes a bit frustrating at times. But um, actually, the last game that I watched was the Matildas with Canada, and I actually worked that out through BBC Sport and a VPN, and that was the best clarity thing. So I've actually been keeping track a bit better now up from that last match, which is a great result to to have a bit more clarity as what well, instead of watching blurs running around. Yeah. So. <laughs> It's been good, mate. It's been exciting. Um, you know, again, there's been some upsets as well, which I've just seen recently. And mainly focusing on the Matildas, though, and, and them getting the job done, topping their group, and uh, hopefully they go all the way. 
Was there any, did anyone in the Socceroos squad give some Aussie DNA to, to any of the Matildas ahead of that, ahead of that game? Aussie DNA, I think all of them, to be honest. I think they, they showed a great reaction, um, from the upset against Nigeria, um, that no one really expected, um, maybe shocked everyone as well. Maybe a lot of people were disappointed, um, uh, for them to come out the way they did against Canada. I think every, every Aussie player that came out on the pitch, and off the bench, all did a job, and I'm so proud of them. To be fair, because um, they made it tough for themselves, but they came out on top, and I think that's just purely Aussie spirit backs up against the wall, coming out on top, and that's you can credit every single person that was involved in that game. Absolutely. Now, next up, they're taking on Denmark, and straight away, straight away, everyone went. Well, we know yeah. the last time <laughs> we played Denmark. So any, uh, any, t- I mean, look, it's women's side, not the men's side, but any, any tips for, is there any certain things to beating Denmark? Maybe stealing notes on the pitch or? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, that was no, um, honestly for, for them now, hopefully they just get a lot of confidence from their last result. Um, to be honest, and hopefully a few other players coming back from injury, like Sam Kerr, obviously has been like a bit of a major loss. Mm. Um, and she's only going to add more foul firepower if she's going to be available. Um, and credit to the girls getting the job done without their probably star forward. Um, and yeah, I think just, I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, it's hard to say. Obviously, uh, the men's world cup last year where we played Denmark, uh, again, for us, no expectations. They'll, I think, t- rank 10th in the world. Um, create a huge upset. And I think it's just for the girls to, to ride that wave of confidence and up from that last result. And I think, They've got the quality to go all the way. Uh, we've seen them put in some amazing performances in, even before the World Cup. So yeah. uh, I backed them to go all the way, to be honest. Um, so I'm not, I don't really need to tell them or think about anything more for them to do, really, other than just play to their best ability. And if they do that on their day, they're going to beat anyone. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. And I, this might just be like the, the hardest question, probably, you have to answer the whole, the whole podcast. But the Sam Kerr injury. If let's take it back to Qatar in 2022, if I don't know, Aaron Moy goes down a day before the tournament, um, or something of that nature, like how, how would, how would you guys maybe as a, as a team kind of respond to that and stuff? Like what's, what's your, if you, how, how would you empathize with this certain situation, uh, given that's, you know, such a massive player in, in the Matildas team? Yeah. I think, um, look, yeah, each to their own, I guess, in these circumstances, but I think it's a competitive sport. Um, she is a major asset to their team. Um, you know, so for plans to maybe prepare to come up against someone like her, um, could shift, I guess, or surprise them if, you know, they, they come up with against, uh, against another player with completely different assets to their game, different strengths, um, which could kind of, you know, shuffle their preparations a little bit and maybe rattle them a little bit. I think you can understand that from a competitive standpoint. Uh, the way they approached it um, and keeping people in the dark because uh, yeah. it is a competitive sport. Uh, and if you can take 1% of an advantage or it's going to rattle them on game day with any kind of situation, you'll take that um, as an advantage on game day, especially in such a major tournament. Did you notice, because obviously you're a center forward, so did you notice that they had to maybe alter, obviously, the way they played a little bit too because without Sam and kind of her poaching instincts in particular in the box? Yeah, hundred uh, percent, and that goes into the same with the Socceroos and say if I was playing or Jamie McLaren's playing, we're yeah. very different players, different attributes, and um, you know you you do have to adjust the way you play, and maybe the coach as well changing players against different opponents. You know, sometimes they might be a bit more physical and and bigger defenders, aggressive, 
um, and they might, might want to chuck me on, for instance, I'm just comparing us to the, the Socceroos at, at the moment, mm. or you know, they're, they're either slow, sluggish, not very good on, 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 on crossing balls, and you want a, a poacher like McLaren to be put on. Um, you know, where Sam Kerr, to be fair, feel like she's got it all. So, yeah. uh, you know, obviously, the, if she can come back and play a part in the next game, I think regardless of uh, the way we play, uh, she's a superstar um, and can get the job done in any way and, and can score a goal from anywhere. So, you know, hopefully she's back ready at least to play some sort of part in the next match. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, all right, let's 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 go back now to 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 Qatar. Um, I mean, I think I think all of us here probably want to go back every day to to Qatar. But um, you know, the go- it starts with the goal against Tunisia um, and. I mean, the thing which always strikes back to me with this is it was an, where I went, where I am, it was 8.30 on a Saturday night. So it was basically just the perfect time. Um, and I was watching it, I was watching it at a pub with a few, few mates. Um, and just, just gone crazy when the ball actually went in and stuff. And yeah, like, and then it's just, just unbelievable, right? Like, how do you, like, we're, we're, you know, six or so months removed from this now. Um, do you still think back and think, I think FIFA recently actually shared your goal, like on their social platforms I saw or something. So does it still kind of, is it just crazy? Like, you know, one day I was playing in the A-League and now, you know, I'm scoring such a huge goal at, at a major tournament. Yeah. I mean, for me, like going back to the beginning of my career, I was always like, it would have been a dream come true just to play one cap for Australia, let alone being one of nine goal scorers at a world cup for the country. Um, so to be a part of that little history, a part on the page of a little bit of that history is, is, is insane and surreal. Um, very special. Um, and definitely, I think the biggest moment in my career to date for sure. Um, and just, I guess in the whole scape of like what the goal meant for us to then go on to win that game, being the first win since, uh, the 20, 2010, I believe. 2010. Sorry. Yeah. The first. Yeah. Yeah, so first win in such a long time, um, and being just such a, a a part of such a small scoring group of the national team, and you know, it it, it helped propel us after the, obviously the disappointment of the French match as well. Yeah, okay. and then yeah, Cody, Cody. One thing on that French match, you've mentioned it with the midfielders as well. They were able to bounce back very well from a disappointing game against Nigeria. You guys had a very similar experience. You have that first game against France, doesn't go the way you wanted to, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word. You've then come into a Tunisia game where I guess people in Australia kind of ex- were hoping the throw our best chance to get a win since that 2010 World Cup. But it still was we still by no means were outright favourites. What is it about the Australian spirit that you see that when we really are down, when we really do have our backs to the wall, that we're able to pick ourselves up and we're able to produce performances like that almost so consistently? Oh, mate, that's a good question. Um, to be honest, I think it completely depends on the atmosphere that you create within the playing group. And I think for us individually uh, and collectively with Graham Arnold being the head coach, he created a great family-like atmosphere that we were like a band of brothers willing to go out on the pitch, war together and fight tooth and nail to get the result. Um, and didn't and I guess spun spun the result, which was obviously not the right way uh, to start the World Cup campaign, losing against France 4-1. Um, we, first of all, the first 30 minutes were 1-0 up, which was insane. And <laughs> I couldn't believe it when Craig Goodwin scored that goal. I was like, is this real right now? Um, and me personally as well, that was one of the toughest games I've ever played as a footballer, 
mm. and really felt I could probably honestly say almost out of my depth against such the opposition were just machines. Like every single player in that French national team were just physically unbelievable on the ball, unbelievable. Like the vision of the game and just everything. They were just like all made in a lab compared like what if what I felt like. I was like, I felt like I was like good physically and I could keep up with people, but then they were just like a step above in like every little aspect. Um some some Adelaide fans would argue Craig Goodwin's made in the lab. <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, but um honestly, yeah, Graham Arnold created that kind of um atmosphere within the group that we're literally just a band of brothers. We we kind of wrote off that France match and, and, he, and he, he played it off in, in probably the best way for us to treat it. It was like, that was like our friendly match out of the way. We learned a lot of lessons from that. Now we've got two games, Tunisia, Denmark. That's where we can shock the world kind of thing. Um, and, you know, Tunisia was definitely no easy feat um, going into the World Cup, but I think they hadn't conceded a goal for like 10 or so games um, against quality opposition. You know, they ended up beating France in their final match as well. So we had to get that result against Denmark. Um, you know, so they were definitely a tough competitor and the atmosphere that their fans created as well was very, like, pretty ruthless. That was like whistling and they, they had about 35,000 in the stadium compared to our 10, I think, or whatever, maybe didn't, not even that much. Um, so it was crazy, but yeah, I think it was just that, that Aussie DNA that we didn't lose. Um, Arnie creating that atmosphere. And I, I feel like that same atmosphere is felt within the Matilda squad. You can see the girls. I don't know you can you can only take little uh, drips and drabs of like the mm. videos that they share on social media, um, but the way they support each other, the way they play, um, you know, and even their recovery and their photos, everything looks like a tight knit community within within the playing group, and I think that's important for going as far as you can. Um, and I feel like that played in our favor. For example, when we played Denmark, I know they had a lot of issues going into that tournament, um, and there was I think things with the playing group and and stuff like that, and. You know, it does affect how you play as a team. Um, and I think that's, that's credit to the Aussies, especially. I think we have that, just that Aussie spirit where everyone kind of just gets along with each other and backs themselves. Did you have a mindset as a squad at all after the France game at all to be like, you know, we're not, we're not done here and we have to almost like we have to do something special to try and inspire, inspire everyone back home? Or was it just more of an internal, no, you know, just two games, it's just about the tournament, the result, and there's nothing bigger? Or did you use something, you know, outside of that to kind of to drive you and motivate you? Yeah, what's funny was actually, I think, I think Arnie jumped on that quite early for us to not really um, linger on the result against the France team, not mm. get our heads down. Um, you know, they are the, they were the former champions um, and they're those for a reason. Um, so, you know, see it as basically a friendly match, a learning curve and move on from it. And I feel like everyone just kind of got on board with that. No one kind of, you know, took that into the next training session or were negative and being like, oh shit, like our tournament's over. There was no kind of negativity with that. And I think that's credit to everyone involved, uh, obviously coming from the top with Graham Arnold and, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's just like, you know what, it's, it's the next challenge. And we know as long as it's in your hands, we knew if we beat Tunisia and Denmark, we go through. And that's that's the only mindset we had. So we win Tunisia, we put ourselves in a position now, we beat Denmark, we're through to the next round and, you know, we're shocking the world. And I think that's just the way we approached it really. And uh, I think everyone was just completely on board with that, had the, the same mindset. There was no negativity within the playing group because 
you know, you could imagine some people would have been upset or frustrated maybe, you know, because for me, I was actually surprised I played all four games. I started all four games, you know, there could have been um, rotation and I would have accepted the rotation as well. I was obviously putting my hand up to play any chance you get. But, um, you know, so you could imagine within the playing group, you know, a lot of teams would be like, I could be the man to play up top or in these positions. But I feel like we just we didn't have any of that. Everyone was just backing whoever was getting chosen and who was coming off the bench. And that that whole atmosphere, I think, helped just guide us the way of what we did. Probably the best World Cup campaign Australia's ever had. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Arnie a few times there. And because you worked with him earlier in your career, of course, at the Mariners. Did you notice like a major difference in the way... Obviously, he's developed a lot as a coach, of course. But in the way he kind of motivates and he gets something out of his players, was it different from, you know, in the Socceroos environment than it was, you know, when he was in the, at the Mariners? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think he's, he's approached, I mean, you obviously learn along the way. And, um, you know, when, it, when I started out with him, it was over 10 years ago now. So um, from my memory, I was also a young player just coming in. And from my memory of that, he was quite a ruthless coach and like was on my back a lot, like <laughs> shouting your name a lot where I feel like now he's turned into more on the mental side of the games and man management side of the game is like, he's focuses a lot on that and making sure everyone's right mentally before anything else. And I think that's really, I don't know, helped, I guess, especially the situation with the national team. It's not easy because you don't have a lot of time to work with each other when you go into certain camps and stuff. So I think he always focuses on making sure the atmosphere atmosphere is going to be right before anything else, because you have such a short time. You need everyone to be on the same page and creating that good atmosphere. Um, and I, I feel like that's that man management side and that mental side of, of him. I've noticed maybe a big, big difference from when I was younger working with him at Central Coast Mariners. You mentioned Arnold, Jake, Jake. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. On Graham Arnold, uh, how, like, hitting into the World Cup for 2022, I don't know if you sort of heard, but on social media or whatnot, there were doubts on, you know, whether or not you should be the starting striker to lead Australia into the group. How much confidence did it sort of bring for Arnie, you know, to start all four games for you? And I guess we sort of saw that with some of your, you know, brilliant performances at the World Cup and even further on, and you know, in the friendly against Ecuador, like, did that really sort of um, provide you a lot of confidence and, you know, motivation to really get the most out of your abilities? Yeah, look, for me, uh, the one thing that I respect with Arnie and the way I, I would never want to get in, and for, from myself also, I would never want to get in the way of someone that is doing a, be a, a better job or a, a younger player coming through, especially now that I'm starting to get on a bit. Um, but for me, and I, I did see a lot of those comments and, uh, you know what, like everyone has their opinion and everyone has their right. But for me, the way I approach it, like, I've got thick enough skin to not pay too much attention to those comments. Even my mom, my mom will sometimes actually send screenshots being like, look at these horrible comments. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, who cares? Like, Did you say thanks, mom? Or? <laughs> no, but like, like always the main opinion matters is from who's actually involved in the yeah. minister, who's making those decisions, which is Graham Arnold. If he believes you're good enough to get the job done, that's validation you need. That's the only validation you need. Um, and then it's up to you to repay that if he selects you. Um, and that's just me. I just think you get given opportunities in football. And for me, I feel like every time you get selected for the national team, every time you wear that jersey is an opportunity and you don't want it to be your last. So you give it everything you got. And that's, that's the best you can do. And hopefully it pays out. 
for as long as possible. And that's the way I approach every game. Arnie gave me that trust. And I actually thought he was going to change me because I was so frustrated in that France game, actually. Mm. After 20 minutes, I, I was waving my hands. and Isolated, and, yeah. And I basically yeah. kind of not yelled at Arnie, but yelled out to him because he wanted me to do certain things. And I felt like I was just chasing shadows. Mm. And I yelled out to him being like, like, what more do you want me to do? Like, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And then after that game, he actually pulled me aside and said, like, mate, like, you don't need to do that. Um, you don't need to be waving your hands. We understand that quality opposition, you know, just do your job and you're doing your job. You know, you look at the first 30 minutes, you, we, we went up one nil. You had actually a good shot from like from our pressing, created an opportunity shot from distance, you know, so you had another chance. Um, you know, so we were doing our job. Um, but they're quality opposition. So don't get too frustrated. Just, and you know, it doesn't look good also waving your hands. And I was like, Oh shit, like that's my world cup campaign done. Um, and then obviously trusted me again against Tunisia. So for me, I was like, you know what? Like this, for me, that's the game also that I was like, this could be my last start of the world cup campaign. If I don't put in a, put in a job here and a shift. And it's funny how football works and you kind of just approach it like that. And for me, I think that's how I approach everything, and I'm happy. Like for me, I know there's Jamie McLaren, who's an unbelievable goal scorer, and Jason Cummings also, who was there. Um, but yeah, it's up to the coach to decide who who plays, and I've got respect for those other strikers to do a job. Um, but you know, I was I was very privileged and honoured that Arnie gave me the job to do it, and I think I could say I did a pretty good job. Was it was it more though between you and J Mac because I think Jason was just there for the vibes, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. Um, you know, Jace is a quality striker with an absolute wand of a left foot. Um, and yeah, you could imagine off the the campaign that Jamie McLaren's had. Actually, the last four or five campaigns that yeah. Jamie McLaren, you understand how much he'll probably be frustrated that he didn't didn't get more minutes. Um, in that in that scenario, but I think Arnie just the way he approached every game thought my physicality was going to be a big asset to us getting results and just making sure I could pressure the defense and fight with the big boys at the back, um, which I think the game plan worked. Uh, you know, look at how we how it played out. Um, but Jamie, Jamie McLaren's a competitor um, and great striker. So, you know, he, his chances will keep con- continue to come anyway. So it yeah. worked out all, all, all in all pretty good. Yeah, and I mean, absolutely did. So score the goal and then you share the... The beautiful moment with your son as well with the celebration um how is that like I, I mean i'm sure you've been asked about it many times before but just you know when you again reflect back to to share that on a world cup stage like that must have been just just very emotional but then also you know just just very special mate honestly like i didn't gather like how it all played out like in the moment of the game and then mm. I instantly got showed it after the game uh and credit to the cameraman and all the people running that 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 game that panned to me doing the celebration and panned to my son doing it. And I think that's a moment that'll last forever for me and my son. Um and also special and outside of the goal. I think to be fair, actually it probably got more attention than the goal itself. Um <laughs> uh some of the videos I was getting sent from like from England and other parts of the world was that moment instead of the goal. So <laughs> um it was amazing and it was it was special to share that with my son. Um, and he went back to school after that World Cup campaign, a superstar himself as well. Yeah, just just walked in like, hey, look, you know, <laughs> my dad just scored the World Cup. So, um, 
he was doing interviews and everything. It was madness. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But um, the goal itself as well, um, I always want to watch it back. Like you actually have to redirect because the obviously the cross takes deflection and the ball's almost behind you, and then you just have to kind of you know just kind of guide it in um with the pace of the ball. So I mean, in the moment, that's that's not an easy kind of thing to do either. No, I think uh, actually Graham Arnold laughed about it when we were kind of watching over that game, preparing for the Denmark game. And he basically just laughed it off being like, bet you can't ever do that again. Um, and I was like, absolutely, but I did it when it counts. And that's all that matters. But because if I tried do- doing that a hundred times more in a training, like crossing thing, like I probably wouldn't do it exactly that same and, and nowhere near as probably precise or anything like that because it was, I was running full speed. The ball's taken a deflection. It's kind of gone back behind me. So I've had to readjust and not just re-guide it, but like I think it's always harder with a header um, when you actually have to do the full motion with your neck to mm. generate power and, and hit it clean enough. And uh, it's like all those things were actually made the header really difficult. And I'm just happy it played out in that moment because for sure, if I did that a hundred more times, it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cody, did you um, You mentioned yeah. before... Obviously, Tunisia went through that period where they weren't conceded. It was like 10 goals, uh, 10 games. They didn't concede a goal or something. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. They went to that tournament. They keep a clean sheet against Denmark. They keep a clean sheet against France. You say that to anyone in Tunisia, they think they're getting out of the group. And you're the one goal that they conceded to end, to kind of end their World Cup campaign. Is it surreal to think about in that sense? And is it something that you would have taken in at the time? Or is it something that? maybe reflecting on the tournament now, it's like, oh, wow, that was actually one of <clears throat> probably the strongest defences we could have taken especially taken on, especially on form, and yeah. you're the one to kind of find a way around them. Yeah, and to be fair, it took a bit of a special goal to do it as well. So, um, yeah, honestly, like, we, we obviously, you study your opponents and you prepare for those games and, you know, uh, the coaching staff did all their their research and, and, and they threw those numbers out about how good their form had been, keeping clean sheets and everything like that. So, you know, we knew that we had to work very hard, not just defensively, but making sure we created enough chances to get that goal. Um, and I think the way we were going as well, like we backed our defense, you know, uh, and credit to our all teammates that played and especially like, you know, Kai Rolls, Harry Suter, unbelievable, Matty Ryan also, um, you know, they they helped us obviously you know that iconic moment with Harry Suta's massive tackle in the second half you know that's just as good as a goal um you know and, and it's, it's moments like that and it's just play it's every player doing their job in those big moments and, and it's those big moments that win your games and I think everyone stepped up when they needed to and, and that's what it's about in major tournaments I think mm. I'll be honest I was in cheese bar that game and I believe or I don't believe I, from what I remember Sutar's tackle probably got a bigger um, reception than your yeah. goal, so I'm sorry to say that. But um, you talk about the that backroom staff kind of um, putting out these numbers to say how good Tunisia's defense are. Does that ever act as a motivator for you to go? Yep, I want to be the one to kind of end that streak for them. Yeah, I mean, as a striker, anyway, you kind of you want to approach every game saying that you're going to score goals. Um, you need to have that confidence and maybe that little bit of an ego to say that you can do it. Um, because if you're going out, if, if you've got a striker in your team that's going out, not thinking they're going to score, they shouldn't be starting, first of all. Um, but yeah, I think for us, we, we didn't see, like, we didn't see names on a badge. Like, you know, uh, I think that was one thing Graham Arnold also wanted to try and take away from, you know, their countries with status 
and where their world rankings are. And he tried to not give them that when he was talking about them in meetings. You know, he'd be just he wouldn't be calling them like France or whatever. He'd just be calling like those guys or you know the blue jerseys or whatever that he was kind of saying during the interviews to just try and take away a little bit of like they're all humans just like us. They're not, you know, where there's eleven v eleven players out on the pitch. So if we all do our jobs, we can beat anyone on the day. And and try to create a little bit of that as well, you know, just to get everyone in that in that right mindset. And you know, all those little things help. I think um, giving us that those extra bits of motivation, being like, you know what, Tunisia could be one of our hardest games in this thing. Don't think like everyone's expecting this could be the game Australia going to win, but it's, this is going to be very very difficult. Look at their form, blah blah blah. So that, don't approach this being like, oh, we're playing France, the former world champions. You know, we've got to try and play out of our skin. Don't think, oh, Tunisia is going to be any easier. You know, so try to like put everything, you know, you've got to play to your best ability regardless of who you're playing against. And that's what we need to do to get the job done. And yeah, I mean, and it showed, like I said, like Tunisia beat France, drew against Denmark and their and their former record. Yeah, it was, it was, it was over 10, 10 games, like no goals was, uh, conceded. So um, I think credit to us because, you know, and also, we didn't actually know when we scored against Denmark. We thought, like, for sure that, like, we we thought we drew against Denmark, we'll be safe. And then finding out that we had to win that game because bloody Tunisia beat France <laughs> was just very unexpected as well. Um, but it just all played, and it was just one of those campaigns where everything was going right for us. And that's just not by luck. We created that luck, I think. Is it, is it interesting you mentioned um, Arnie, and you mentioned earlier about his mental kind of um, focus in particular. And I remember when he was Sydney FC coach, it was something when he spoke to the media a lot in particular, you know, he would say a lot of the time he would say, you know, we're going to win. Like in in a pre-match press conference right now, I think that was a different approach because I think he knew he had the talent on paper to win. Whereas I think maybe he changed, still looked at that mental side, but then changed the way he used that probably with you guys at the World Cup um, to, as you said, kind of actually get you guys to realize, you know, yeah, they're just they're just humans like you, and and you can beat them if you play to your best. So you know, it's a very interesting and probably an underappreciated side of the game still in in this day and age. I mean, um, I know because we actually have a piece on front page football about it that uh, one of our writers, Antonis, did an interview with the Mariners mindset coach, um, and he spoke to him about what they were doing this year with the A League, um, and yeah, all the things that they were doing, and you think, yeah, no wonder these guys were kind of primed every week to to win and then eventually win the championship. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very fascinating side um, of the game. One thing which surely would have helped you guys, um, particularly going into the Denmark game, and we have to talk about it, is the Fed Square stuff um, and and the scenes because, yeah, it's just unbelievable. I, I went, I traveled to Melbourne uh, for the Argentina game to watch it at Fed Square. Um, and even even that, even scoring one, getting one back to make it 2-1 and the place still went bonkers, like to, you know, and yeah, uh, and just got, God only knows what would have happened if, uh, if Gary and Qual, of course, you know, uh, found the net right at the end there to make it 2-0. But um, just your experience, I mean, and there was, there was heaps of videos showing, you know, the players watching the scenes um, afterwards and just actually being gobsmacked. Were you, were you kind of along the same lines? Mate, honestly, it was actually insane to see that kind of support back in Australia um you know when australian football was probably having its its issues already um there's always something negative to be spoken about either with the a league or how the how football's run in australia and everything going on 
for then it to just have that reaction and support during the World Cup campaign was insane. When I watched back the reaction of my goal or in Craig Goodwin's goal and and everything like that moving forward and then Lecky's obviously following. Um, for me personally, watching mine over, it was like absolute goosebumps seeing everyone lose it in Fed Square and just honestly, like the reaction is insane. It gives me goosebumps every time I think about it um, to know that was the support. And the reaction, yeah, like honestly, the, just everything in, in regards to the, those moments, like and combined even after the World Cup campaign when I finally went back to Australia, that was the first time I actually felt, well, like people were noticing me as a footballer like when I was playing in the A-League, like you just kind of go about your day and no one really notices you. And then I, then I was actually starting to get noticed being like, oh, Mitch Duke from the World Cup. And it's like, it was, it was those little differences that I was like, wow, like that made an impact. Um, and that World Cup campaign made an impact on like everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. And obviously, and so it should have. Uh, I know it was a probably very underrated team. People wrote us off very early um, before the campaign even started. Um, and everything like that, saying, oh, we don't have enough players playing in the top five leagues of Europe and blah, blah, blah. Names on paper weren't good enough. And, you know, and you could argue, yeah, fair enough. But what we did, and I think maybe that adds to it as well, being like how much, how well we did com- considering that um, compared to the the golden age, the golden era, um, you know. So I think it's just credit to everyone. And uh, I know that's the thing when going back to Arnie again with the, the mental side of things. He never once went back on his word when he started He started that World Cup preparations campaign when we obviously had to go the hard way. We had to beat UAE and uh, Peru in the playoffs. He never. He said from the beginning he was going to, this World Cup squad, uh, campaign squad, I know he rotated a lot of players, but we're gonna, this Socceroos squad is going to shock the world. And he, he never doubted that, even going through the playoffs. And I think everyone just kind of believed in that as well. Um, and he followed that through the whole the whole time, and I think that helped us do that. What we did at the World Cup. Mm. Uh, yeah, Mitch. Just on sort of you briefly touched on it when when you're back and playing in the A League, and maybe you weren't recognised as much. And I think it just t- touches on general how you've played quite a lot of football out in Japan. Maybe you're not in the A League like other players have. Um, we haven't you know, obviously seen you week in week out, and I think a lot of football fans was utterly shocked at how well you were playing in that World Cup. I think I remember, you know, specifically me and Christian did a. Uh, pre- uh, Can I be honest? I, I feel, I feel, I feel like it's not fair of me not to say this, uh, given that you're here, Mitch. I was surprised that you did start the first game, right? But then I saw, but then I saw, to be honest, then I saw kind of against Tunisia and then Denmark how we were kind of what we're trying to do off the ball and you're pressing, and then I was like, okay, right now I can see why he's actually selected him to to play that role. So. I just felt this whole time you're talking about the amount of people that were doubting you, and I just felt it was not fair for me not to uh, not to mention that I might have been in that in that group. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm having more doubters than the likers, so it's fine. No, but I'd also <laughs> add to that because I think I think the thing that's really surprised me with your game is your hold-up play. It was utterly mm. ridiculous. Some of the touches and sort of you know with you know balls being pinged at you, you touch it perfectly, lay it off. And I, I remember after the pre uh, the post game, Ecuador, I did a. Po- uh, a it's got a podcast with Christian, and yeah, we did. Yeah. Know, there were R nine and Ibrahimovic, you know, comparisons being thrown around there. <laughs> some of the you know flicks and tricks you were doing. So, do, do you think you know your, your time in Japan, maybe away from some of the media attention here in Australia, allowed you to really develop your game and focus on these parts that I guess shocked everyone? Yeah, um, I think that's what because uh, I think people see me playing in the league that I'm playing in J two second division here in Japan, 
So they automatically put a, maybe a stigma on you as a player mm-hmm. that you're not up to the level. You're not playing top league in an, in an Asian league, but they, they forget, first of all, Japan, they have plenty of quality here. It's very competitive. Um, you know, just in the J2 league here, um, where we're top of the league at the moment in 22 teams. It's very competitive. It's not easy. So we're, we're going the right way for promotion now. And I'm a main starter for that as well. So, um, there's that, but it's just, yeah, I think. It's just that stigma that people put on you. And I think what helps, Arnie touched on this as well with me, knowing that I'm 32-year-old currently now. And after that Ecuador game, actually, funny enough, he gave me a lot of credit because I think, yeah, we did we did really well against Ecuador in that game. And, yeah, I felt like I had a good game, got an assist, could have had a goal and a couple more other chances created as well um, from that. And he basically said, mate, you're getting better. It looks like you're getting better. Mm. And... And he, he played, I said, I was like, actually, I was like, it's funny you say that now because he, he was so late on giving me a professional contract. I was training with the first team for two years and I was golden boot in the youth league those two years. And I scored on my debut and I still didn't get my contract until the second year. And so I was, and I was like, Arnie was there the whole time and he chose Bernie Abini, um, over me. And I had to wait another year, even though I was a year older than him. And I was like, I'm on the, on my, on my back legs here. Try about to give up football because, um, like after the youth league, you can't play after you're 21. And I was coming up to that age group. So, mm-hmm. and I said to Arnie, I was like, well, you should give me a contract earlier, mate. Like whatever. And he's, he, he tries to claim it being like, I think it's helped you being a late bloomer because now you're hitting your peak. Like as a bit of an older date, you've got less games to your body, you know? So like, cause you know, there's players that start at 17 mm-hmm. at, at the professional level. So they get a lot more mileage i guess in the legs so for me i might be 32 but i haven't been playing professional football as long as others at a 30 at the age of 32 so i've still probably got that that's why maybe i can still do that pressing because i haven't got the mileage like of the 30 32 year olds so i mean i'll take that as a positive i don't know if there's an exact science to that but i'll go along with it because i do feel like i'm getting better to be honest and you know japan plays a massive part in that because it's a very competitive league it's a very fast league very technical league. So I've had to improve in a lot of ways. Um, and I have Jap- Japan to thank for that massively. And, uh, looking like I should be in J1 next year as well, which is again, only going to benefit me and the national team going forward. If I stay at a top level, was it nice to, uh, knock Kevin Musket out of the cup recently as well? Yeah. And get the goal as well to, to help put him away. <laughs> but, um, now nah, it's always good to, to see fellow Aussies just doing well yeah. and, them. and honestly, he's a part of a, an amazing club and to be able to, to be at the the wheel of a major club like that as well, and hopefully following Ange Postecoglou's steps, or well, he already has actually he won it last year, um, and you know I actually had a good word with him after that game, and he's really enjoying Japanese football. He said, I actually asked him, I was like, are you you're looking to go to Europe? And he actually gave Japan a massive up and just said, you know, the J League and clubs here in Japan are actually mm. better than a lot of clubs in Europe. He's obviously had that experience as well, so he can say that. Um, and he's like, you know, you wouldn't go to anywhere other than the top five leagues. He's like, J League's right up there, and he's really enjoying it. And it, it is. It's. I think it's. I mean, I don't know, like underrated or people don't pay too much attention because it's not right on their backyard. But um, you know, Japanese footballs is up there, and they're, they're showing that with their national team as well. Yeah, for sure. Even now, and Cody can speak more to this. But at the Women's World Cup, um, Japan have been absolutely flying, and there seems to be maybe a feeling that people are a little bit surprised. But I think. Like they've been, they've been a great 
great side in the women's game for for many many years, right? So yeah, it's maybe maybe it's just a little bit of an Asian stigma, you know, um, a little bit too, um, against against countries um who play play in the AFC and stuff. But yeah, um, a couple more questions on the World Cup. Um, I can't believe we're probably forty minutes in this podcast. We haven't even asked you yet. Facing Mbappe, facing Messi, just just general thoughts on that. Oh, mate, that's what I, that's what I was. It was just an, it was insane, surreal, and lucky enough, I can say I faced Messi twice now. Um, but honestly, those kinds of players is is where you see the difference. And and for me myself, where I, where you think you know you're a good footballer, you can play at a good level. And look, for me, even after the World Cup and I, even before that, I've been offered championship clubs and, and things like that. So I could be playing also at a better level. Unfortunately, I've made decisions a bit more financially to help me more long-term. But, you know, where you think, you know, you can play at a certain level, but then you see players like Mbappe, Messi's, uh, even Dembele's, and I feel like that whole French national team. I feel like a bit more comfortable actually playing against Argentina than I did. Yeah. Obviously, they're now the current world champions, but then the France national team, I just felt like we're just unbelievable machines and that's like i said i felt out of my depth and they were just a different level like seeing mbappe's turn of speed while having the control that he does and the technical ability that he does um is just insane um messi the same um dembele also and uh, just unbelievable and it's a good learning curve because it does it, it brings you back down to earth real quick um like I said, I don't, actually, I'm not one to also moan and, and that in the game. But when if I'm doing that because I'm frustrated and at the coach after 20 minutes chasing shadows, uh, you know you're facing a good opponent. And yeah, it's, for me, it's it's hard because you're you're in the moment of playing a game, but you really see the quality and like you should ask that question more to like Nate Atkinson who had to play. Against. That, I was just about to say that that poor guy, man. Uh, yeah, man. Honestly, I. <laughs> I'd rather sit on the bench, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. um, oh man! You mentioned um, before, yeah, okay. yeah. You mentioned before when you're going to those team meetings before those games, Graham wondered what when he's referring to the French side or the players will just go, "Oh, they're this team or oh, that blue shirt guy." Did he have anything special to refer to Messi as, or was it just, "Oh, blue and white guy"? That, that bloke in particular to get underneath him. Yeah. So he, yeah, he, he, he I, I'm trying to remember. I don't think he actually said his name. He, I think he just said that guy. Um, but yeah, to like just not not completely downplay it, obviously. But he's such an interesting one person for me to experience, you know, from a player standpoint and having the coaches. Uh, for me, it's just an impossible task in a, in a video meeting because the way he plays is insane. No other player can play like him because of he doesn't def- he doesn't defend. He like yeah. He ins- he insanely walks like, and the video session, I was just like, this guy's walking and the play's going past him, but it's just when he turns on, he's the most dangerous player in the world. And it's just, it's insane to watch that in a video meeting being like, cause you can't, def- you can't completely focus on him. Otherwise your tactics are out the window. And then it's like, but then he's the most dangerous player. So you have to pay it. It's like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I was, it, cause you watch him in the video sessions and you think the, the play's gone by him. And he's behind everyone else and he's not doing anything. And then it's just when they get possession and the, and the play comes back into his vision, uh, he just turns on again. And it's just, you, you can't defend against it. And it's, it's, it's insane to watch, um, and try to prepare for. What? Well, it's only fitting to ask. Yeah, Jake. Is he your goat? 
yeah. For uh, for me, like obviously, I I, I hate the comparisons. Um, oh no! I mean, now now Mitch is going to have Ronaldo fanboys and Tunisia fans in his in his in his DMs. Yeah, yeah. That's something I was like, oh shit, more hate in the DMs. Great. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, like I hate the debate because uh, they both respectively de- deserve the title of the numbers that they've put in and and, and what they've done over the fifteen plus years. Um, but if I was just to edge it to Messi, it's purely more for the pure football aspect of like even him creating chances, assists and everything on top. Ronaldo's a machine, goal scorer, athlete, predator. Um, but Messi's got that bit more obviously creativity and, and everything to his game there. And I, I think that's what edges him out. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned before about how when you came back from the World Cup, um, people kind of saw you differently and they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's Mitch Duke. Did particularly, you, because most of you in the squad were developed in the A-League. So when you when you went to a World Cup and you know you're, it's almost like every four years, there's almost feels like there's this, the Socceroos are carrying, you know, the flag now and they have to do well because, you know, then Australian football benefit from and, and all this sort of stuff. Did you feel like that? Like you had to fly the flag for Australian football when, when you went up against these teams? 100%. Um, I think that World Cup campaign was so important for a lot of reasons because, I don't know, I think like just the whispers and things going about with Australian football and the, the amount of negativity surrounding it and, you know, saying how bad the runs game financially, investment, everything going about the game um, not being great. Um, for us to then do that at the World Cup, I think really changed the mentality of a lot of people, get a lot of things, uh, you know, sorted out, I think, and maybe a bit more attention put on the game worldwide as well as like within its own country, uh, which was which was needed. Uh, uh, it needed that little kick up the ass, I think, um, and that World Cup campaign definitely helped. Um, you know, and just you can look at look look back even the current world champions Argentina and the coach coming back after getting questioned after the World Cup, basically saying Australia was their toughest opponent. Like to have these little moments and that kind of respect from the current world champions and worldwide football, uh, I think that says a lot for Australian football moving forward. And, you know, we can build a lot off that. And, you know, and it, and it's great. You want Australia to have the reputation now where, you know, we're, now we're building up to the next Asian Cup. And you want us to have that expectation that we can do something instead of being like, oh, we're going to get smashed or we're not going to get out of the group or, you know, things like that where we obviously had that building up into the, the last World Cup and actually previous campaigns as well. Um, you know, and hopefully that just keeps getting better and better for us. Do you remember, I was going to mention something about Messi. Cody and Jake. You, you might uh, be able to help me with this, but wasn't there something like he, in like a 90-minute match on average, like he only sprints for something like two minutes or something something crazy like that? So, yeah, kind of ties into what you're saying before. It's just... Well, so, it's funny. So, during the World Cup, uh, every player got given their own FIFA uh, code thing for the FIFA app during the World Cup. So, we could track... You could track your highlights, how, much, how, how, how many kilometers you run, how many sprints, how many shots... Everything and you can you can compare that to players in your position and players not in your position. Um, I remember seeing something, yeah, something like Messi runs like seven, seven, seven and a half Ks a game. Where like for me, I ran I ran that in sixty three minutes. Like, you know, like it's I find that mad. Crazy. Uh, 
yeah, you know, a, sta- a standard game, most players are, are running 10 and a half, 11 Ks. Um, so for him to be able to put out numbers like that, but then be so effective is just crazy as well. And I don't know if you've seen it. I, I think it was on like 433 and a few other quite like well followed social yeah. media uh, pages, sorry. And from the one we played against Me- uh, Messi in Beijing, there's a video of him standing still for like a minute while the football game's going on, like genuinely standing still. And I'm like, watch that back over. And I was like, oh, wait, that's against us. And it's madness. He's standing still while the game's being played. And it's like, no one else can get away with that because you need to do your job defensively as a team and as a tactical unit. But it's just like, he can get away with it because it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever feel like, because that you're right, you play him twice now. Do you ever feel like it's like, why is, like that's how he plays, but it's like, can he stop kind of taking the piss out of us for a second? Or <laughs> and there was that moment where even uh, Kai Rolls came off that game, and he's like, "Mate, I tried to basically spear tackle him, and he still weaseled out of it and ended up dribbling away with the ball." It's just like, what do you do to stop this guy? And it's just like, mate, when he turns on, he turns on, and it's just it's just so hard. And you can you're seeing that even now in the MLS, he's obviously getting on a bit. He's thirty five, thirty six now, I think. And he's got five goals in three games, uh, made made a massive change. And the, the impact that he makes is just insane. I felt, even when we went to Beijing, it felt like we were in Argentina with the amount of messy shirts that I saw. Mm. Yeah. No, I was there. Yeah. That was crazy, the crowd, actually, in that game. Um, and, yeah, you're right. Like the- and, and it does frustrate me because I'm like, I'm running my ass off every minute I'm on that pitch. And then he gets to just walk by. And then he, when he turns on, he's just, so dangerous. I was like, I just wish I had that ability, but um, yeah. just on your recent move as well, you've gone to Machida's LVR at the start of this season. Considering it was announced just after the World Cup, of course, but from what we've heard, it looks like it was all done before the World Cup had even started. Um, I guess a lot of us in Australia were surprised that that was a move you were making up for such a stellar World Cup, even though it was kind of organized before. What did make you kind of make that move from one J League to club to another? And I guess, were you kind of expecting to be in the position with the club that you are now that you are? Yeah. Um, and that was like, obviously, it's, it's so hard, mate, because you, you, you weigh in on decisions. And, you know, I made that decision before the World Cup because also you, you want to have that little bit of security. It was, it was a great deal. Uh, it, was a, it was a hard one to say no to. Um, and I'm very happy with it. From the financial side of things, so um, I don't regret making that decision because um, you, also you never know how it's going to play out. You know, there, there, there's a situation that you put yourself in. You don't know if you, imagine I didn't play any minutes at the World Cup. Australia didn't win any games. We didn't score any goals, mm. and then I'm chasing a contract potentially after that. Um, you know, I had a great season with my former J2 team, um, finished third, and that was the best position they had ever finished in their club's history. Um, and I played a big part in that, um, which was amazing and special. Um, and then I got approached by this club here who had huge ambition. They've got big sponsor. So they've got good financial investment. They just built a whole new clubhouse that's only over a year old. Um, and they, they told me the players that they were signing. They signed a, a top class Brazilian forward that played under Ange Postacoglu, who won the J1 with Yokohama Marinos. Eric. Um, yeah. Eric, top Brazilian player. Unbelievable. Um, and he's shown that this year he's got 15 goals and seven assists or something like that. Um, you know, unbelievable player. And, you know, there's big reasons to that. And it, it's, and it's playing off so far because my ambition was 
to sign here and help the team get back to J1, where I want to be in J1. The offers that I was getting in J1 after the World Cup were still not as good financially here. Um, I was getting offers in championship clubs. That was still not as good as um, my what my salary is here and things like that. So, And I didn't want to go back to the Middle East after my Saudi Arabia experience. Uh, I wanted to either be in Japan or wanted to be in England. Um, and they were, they were my two factors. And I, I weighed in a lot with the financial factor, um, where I'm comfortable and the ambition. And like, you know, it's kind of like playing level, financial security, and if it's going to affect my national team or not and lifestyle. So I kind of weighed in on those uh, decisions and I, I ended up here and I, I don't regret that decision. Um, I always wanted to test myself in the English Championship. I get told by so many players like Harry Sutar, Raleigh McGree, who've experienced it. They make like, you would do really well in the championship. You're built for it. Your playing style is perfect for it um, and everything like that. So that's the only thing I might question myself. I wish I gave it a go. Uh, maybe took the salary cut just to give it a chance. But um, unfortunately, that opportunity didn't come eight years ago. Uh, uh, right now, I'm 32 and, and money talks as well. So I found that... Um... Kind of funny, actually, because people, like you said, that was that was done before the World Cup, and then people, when they saw it, a lot of people here were like, "What's going on? Why is he going? You know, J two to J two to J two. He's better than that. This, that, and the other." Funnily enough, funnily enough, probably those same people before the World Cup who were going, "Oh, he's a J two player. Like, why is he starting?" Right. So that's, yeah. that's interesting, <laughs> right? And then. <laughs> And then I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. He's not going to be negotiating the deal in the middle of the tournament, right? You know, so yeah. The, it, I think yeah. I can take, and that's the that's the thing. Like, say, say for yourself, even like you, you doubted me, maybe being the main the main striker to start in that mm -hmm. tournament. And I think for me, I just think like, you know, I was actually so I was actually top goal scorer in the national team for the World Cup qualification as well, um, building up to that World Cup campaign. Even though I played a lot less minutes than the other like other strikers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I don't know if like I had a stigma about me that I'm I'm just whatever, but like I was like the stats even building up to the World Cup spoke like you know I was the top goal scorer for the national team when I didn't start as many of the games as say like an Adam Taggart and and mm. other strikers. So you know, for me to still have those those goals to my tally building up to the World Cup, I felt like I was validated to to be given that opportunity. Um, but it. it so that's what I so I saw some comments where when people were doubting me, okay, doubt me to not start. I understand that because McLaren's was having unbelievable goal scoring form. Um, so I can understand that. But then I, I was seeing comments being like, how is he even in the national team? Blah, blah, blah. But then I kind of feel like every time I've been given my chance, I kind of do a decent job. Um, so that, that was the only thing that would frustrate me. But amazing to see the change now of what you just said after this World Cup. <laughs> people don't question me either getting selected or playing. Um, and that's a nice feeling now. I feel like I kind of finally earned the respect. And I feel like even the same for Arnie. It, it almost took Arnie to do that well at the World Cup to earn that respect because everyone was saying he was going to get the sack before the Peru game um, because like he doesn't deserve to be there. But now everyone's like, what an like, unbelievable job you've done. Um, and I feel like I've got that same respect now, which is nice. Um, but I know that doesn't last forever and I've got to keep that going. Um, and I look forward to hopefully staying in that picture, building up to the next Asian Cup and then see what goes on from there. Because I'd love to be a part of the Asian Cup squad and be lifting that trophy. Absolutely, yeah.
Bacardi, sorry. You talk about respect the club that you are at now. Um, you're almost like a mini celebrity in the stands. There's been times where they've kind of had to face um, displays of just Australian flags. How does it feel being in a foreign country? I know you've spent a lot of your career in Japan, but being in another country and still having that reception as a foreign player. Mate, it's honestly amazing. And that's one thing I love about here in Japan. Um, now I've played for three clubs here. It's unbelievable. Like the support system here, they're, they're very fanatical. They're very loyal supporters and they show up. They support the club, um, in every, every team, you know, like there's, there's so many teams to support as well. There's like, there's like 18 teams in J1, 22 teams in J2, 18 teams in J3. Um, you know, and there's just in Tokyo themselves, there's probably like 15 plus teams, you know, and the support system is unbelievable. And, you know, regardless, even if you win, lose or draw, they're the same voice um, continuously. And that's the one thing I love about here. Um, even my experience, when I got relegated in 20, 2015, the supporters were the opposite. They weren't like angry or crazy and sending you hate messages and all sorts. They'll just be like, oh, like we believe that you're going to get get us up back up to J1 instead of like, you know, they have that positive sw- twist. And I love that about here because, you know, sometimes you can get a bit of like toxic in football. You know, I've experienced it in Australia as well. Uh, when you have oh really? Back- nah, no way. <laughs> when you have well, yeah, <laughs> national team or you know club football, and you, you play one game, and then all of a sudden you're a horrible player, um, and they forget about maybe the the last game where you scored two goals or you know something like that. Um, so I, I honestly, I love it, and that's why I've stayed in Japan so long, and that's why I've got yeah, I probably that respect and longevity here as well. So um, you know, I've even got tattooed on my skin now. So very much, Japan is my second home. I think it was um, Stefan Mork said recently, uh, he was speaking to one of our one of our writers and he said, he used the phrase, treated like a rock star was, was, the, was the phrase he used. So, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, uh, the, club, the club that he's still at now, who I'll be playing against this weekend, actually, my old team, um, they've got a great support base. You know, when we finished third last year, you know, we're getting up to 15,000 people at our games every week. Um, in a ver- and what you'd call a not very popular city, like a, almost like a country town area. Um, so it's in those places you definitely feel more like a rock star. Where like for me now I'm in Tokyo and there's tourists and, and foreigners yeah. everywhere. So people don't notice you any differently from anyone else. They'll probably think like, oh, he's either just like traveling here on holiday or he's in the army. I get that a lot because uh, my haircut probably. Um, but when like when I play for Okayama where Mork is, Everyone knows you're you, like if you're a foreigner there that looks a little bit like fit, athletic. They're probably like, yeah, you play for our football team, mm. and mate, they're like, everyone's stopping you for photos on the street, and it's so cool. They they'll stop their bicycles like they'll be on their way home or on the way to work, and they'll just like slam on their brakes, ask for a photo, and you do definitely have that rock star feeling. Um, uh, but for me, it's very different in a big city like Tokyo where they don't know who you are. Which is quite nice. I like kind of blending into the surroundings. I was going to say, what would you prefer? That kind of rock star feel or just being able to kind of go about your business? Yeah, that, was obviously- that small town stuff is where it's like, for me, after a game, I don't mind having having a bit of a drink or just going somewhere to just have a have a chill drink or something. But you don't want to be completely seen by that, by your supporters or your fans. Mm. Um, but you can't hide away in, in cities like that, um, where for me here, people will never clue what I'm getting up to, which is, I, I like that. <laughs> And and just on uh your sort of experience in Japan, obviously you're killing it with uh, with, uh Cheetah. Uh you're you know, 
on your way almost to uh, get promoted to J1 and obviously you're contracted there for you know, further years, but maybe a little bit further into the future, obviously you are unfortunately getting on with age. You know, we'd love to see you start in the next decade up top, but unfortunately time does, you know, play its part. Uh, do you potentially see yourself returning to the A-League, um, you know, sort of further on in your career? Yeah. Um, in the ideal world for me, um, like you said, you never know what comes along year by year. Um, I could be blindsided by a random deal. Like some boys seem to be just like, say, heading to India for a very nice little financial pay, payday. Um, but for me, ideally, I'd love a few more years here in Japan and I'd love to finish off at one of my, like either Mariners or Wanderers, ideally would be cool to finish off at, but A League in general, it would, would be nice. Um, because it's just where I started. I think it would just be a little bit of a nice way to finish your career. And I'd love to finish it with, you know, in a competitive way at the top, winning the league or winning the championship. Um, so hopefully that, that that's definitely in the plan. I'm, I'm 32 now. So I'd like to say I've got a couple more years at the top level here in Asia in, in, in the J League and then see where that takes me. You mentioned, um, and I realized, yeah, we'll probably, probably wrap up soon, but you mentioned, um, your stint in Saudi Arabia and there's all sorts of things going on. Uh, obviously there at the moment, um, seems like, seems like every, every man and his dog is, is, is transferring to Saudi Arabia at the moment. But, um, what's, um, any, any, any kind of thoughts from your stint there? And then also just kind of on what's, what's happening there, I guess, at the moment with the, with the transfer market. Yeah. It's, it surprises me a lot. I mean, I, I know they've got unbelievable wealth and, and money to invest there for that for the sport um for me it's like yeah i don't know it's like a little bit of a funny feeling because i didn't have obviously the greatest time there i didn't really enjoy it uh, my experience and i guess how it all ended and how it all played out um and then for yeah i don't know like seeing the amount of money that those big players are going for and then knowing that you know i was in a situation where i wasn't getting paid for months and knowing players don't get paid for months there at times uh uh, so I'd be curious to see if those bigger players are going through those kinds of situations with such big salaries and they're not getting paid like a few months. If that's a situation that they're going through or if there's no way they'd be doing that to the bigger bigger guys and just some of the smaller guys would be getting punished a bit more. I don't know. But hopefully they're, hopefully they're a little bit better from my experience when I was there. I was a bit behind in payment um, with my salaries and like that that kind of situation frustrated me a little bit and knowing that there was almost every club there that was had players going through that same thing so yeah I'd be curious to see uh, they might they, they would have had to have tightened up on that with having these big players because you can't see a benzema not getting paid to play like he's just not gonna have it he'll just be a big dog and just be like i'm just gonna get my private jet and leave like <laughs> um so yeah, I, I'm I'm sure it's obviously getting better now, and and they, they've obviously got a big plan for themselves to try and be heavy hitters, maybe in the footballing world now. And a part of that is bringing in those big dogs, and so far they've attracted unbelievable quality. So it's going to be a very competitive Saudi Arabian league coming up. Talk about lifestyle yeah. being a big factor of your time in Japan, and big factor of how you kind of choose what club you go to. When you went to Saudi Arabia, what was that kind of off-field lifestyle like? And do you see the likes of your Ben Smith, your Kantes, your Ronaldo's actually enjoying it? Yeah. So, uh, so I was weighing up. I was trying to pay attention to so which players were going where because there's two major 
cities that I would say is you can go to these cities like Riyadh or Jeddah, and there's like three teams kind of in each of those. Um, and if you go to any of those teams in those cities, you can have a very enjoyable lifestyle. It can be quite westernized, amazing restaurants and plenty to do there. Um, the place that I went was very central Saudi. The compound that I was living at was very isolated. Um, it was very barren. It's quite very much just desert like where I was. Um, with not the best setups or much to do there. And yeah, so that, so for me, the, the, the thing for me, the only thing good there was the financial aspect. And then I also was, then I went months without getting paid. So that was also not really playing in. And then I went there after the best goal scoring season I had at Wanderers, scoring 14 and 26. Um, so, and then they put me as a winger when I arrived in the Saudi Arabian league to my team. And so I was like, that frustrated me. So already there, the financial side and the, and the football side was bad. And then the lifestyle just completely flipped me on, on my head as well was they train at nighttime. And so basically you're sleeping all day. So my whole routine shifted and like everything was just like on its head. And I just, I hate, like, didn't hate, like, I don't want to say hate, but I didn't enjoy it. And it just wasn't for me. Um, and my, to suit my lifestyle. And I think that's, that plays into all, all those factors. And if you're not enjoying yourself, I think money doesn't come into anything anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. You just want to get out and, and enjoy yourself and enjoy your football again. Um, and I'm so glad I got out of there when I did. And I think that trajected me to, to get back up to where I am now and help me go to a World Cup, Olympics and a World Cup. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. It's a mad journey sometimes, football, where you think like, yeah, you're at like rock bottom in certain positions and it's, and then you make this decision. That's a, that's a huge risk and you just got to try and make it play out as best as, as you can. And for me, I was begging to get out of my Saudi Arabian club to go on loan to Western Sydney Wanderers. And then that was a three week battle. They started isolating me to train by myself. Um, basically tried to make me just terminate my agreement. Um, and everything like that and kind of, yeah almost forced me to do that and then I had to negotiate my way out of it and then yeah I went from that to basically being in a horrible position to then going back to Wanderers enjoying football again scoring goals going to the national team going to the Olympics and then ended up back in Japan so and going now being a World Cup goal scorer so it's pretty pretty happy I made that decision because who knows what would have happened if I just kind of potentially rotted in the Saudi Arabia League if they didn't let me go or if I didn't get out mm. And then 2024, Asian Cup winner. 2026, uh, what are we saying? Quarterfinals, World Cup? World Cup winner. World Cup winner. For me, well, uh, and I've had this chat with Arnie. Uh, I'm not looking too far ahead for me now getting on a bit because I also don't want to be in a position where I'm taking up a younger player's spot if they're better than me. I always put my hand up to get selected. But uh, I'm, I'm not looking towards the next World Cup at all um definitely focus on the next asian cup um i can feel like i can give my best and give everything at that point in time and help out potentially with the world cup qualifiers but i think after the asian cup i'll take it potentially camp by camp and see see where that takes me if i'm still in good enough condition and feel like i can actually benefit the team at the best of my ability and for the team then for sure i'll be ready for the world cup but i'm definitely not looking too far ahead for that do you feel do you feel like your knowledge um, having built up, having played in Japan for as long as you have, is, is going to be a benefit to uh to the team as well for the Asian yeah. Cup. 
I think uh, it's that competitive nature. I'm not saying obviously A League's not competitive, but there's there's things you find within yourself when you're playing in a league that has promotion relegation. There's so much on the line. Um, you know that that gets brought out in, in in different ways. And like so, for major tournaments, I think to have that DNA within your playing style and and, and within yourself as a player is important going forward. Um, you know, regardless, you're, you're a competitor playing at the top level in the A League as well, and you want to win regardless like that, but there's not too much punishment if you don't, um, where there's a lot more on the line in, in other leagues around the world. If you've got promotion, relegation, you know, that you're talking about people's livelihoods who either get huge salary cuts if they're in a team that gets relegated uh, or huge pay rises if you get promoted and etc. So I think that adds more value and makes every game competitive. You know, you're playing against the, the team coming 22nd, but they could beat you because they need to get out of that relegation spot. Um, and that just adds a different dynamic. Sometimes it makes some games messy because they take away the football aspect and they just want to get a result. Um, but that's part of the nature as well because in, in tournament football, you have that same approach. You want to win the tournament. And I don't think anyone's going to complain if you won a World Cup ugly. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the, like, uh, I think that's a Mourinho kind of statement where he'll be like, you know, very sometimes he ha- he has games where he's like very very tough to watch and park the bus football and blah blah blah. And he'll say defense wins your championships, but if you've got a Premier League title on, on your resume, are you really minding? Are the fans really going to mind? I well, I didn't mind when he was coaching my club, but um, when he went to other clubs, I did. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. So it's just yeah, uh, it's just that it's just that thing. So for, for me, um, I think it, it it is important. And and like I said, now I'm 32. So I think a mixture between experience and youth is always always a good balance within a team. And I think for me, from my side, even if I'm not going to either be a main starter, but being within the squad can benefit the team itself and the players around me, then for sure, I'd love to continue doing that. And I think I can be an asset in all areas. All right, Mitch. Um been an absolute pleasure we could i mean seriously we 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 go on way too long sometimes with these podcasts but we honestly could ask you about so much um to to do with with your career and everything um it's it's been a pleasure to have you on um thanks for giving up your time i know obviously busy schedule at the moment of course uh playing playing in japan um but yeah really appreciate it i know you've given definitely myself and and the two other lads here um you know uh some 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 great moments um for sure with with the Tunisia goal and then obviously you guys getting the job done against Denmark and yeah just uh it was is very very special time hopefully now we can see the Matildas uh, replicate something similar at uh, at this World Cup that would be absolutely fantastic um Cody Jake anything to add uh, before before we wrap up um I know I said Sudar's celebration uh, Sudar's tackle may have got a bit more of a reception at Cheese Bar but it doesn't make um your goal any less chaotic of the scenes. <laughs> Um, that day, I, I thought I just add that in. Ah, happy days, mate. Honestly, that, that was that was one thing actually I really loved was uh, I got sent a video by a fan. I think it was after the Tunisia goal, and it was that remix of that song it was like Mitch Duke's on fire. Uh, like your defense is terrified. Like it was like I was getting sent that in a pub in Qatar, and you know little things like that. I was like, ah, those moments are something that will live for me forever in, in the footballing world. Um, and uh, I appreciate you adding that in. Uh, I'll make sure Suta. Uh, doesn't take away all my glory. Jake? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your chat. I appreciate it a lot. Um, it was very fascinating to hear a lot of this, I guess, from the other side, you know, obviously us as fans and you as the actual player, you know, you gave us some 
truly yeah like memorable moments you know like that, that, that was the first time i've ever cried at a game you know <laughs> after that especially the denmark game that got me emotional that was just beautiful so uh, yeah and yeah. I, I wish you good luck with the rest of the season with uh the cheetah hope you guys you know, do go on to win the league that'd be unbelievable achievement and then uh back in the j1 which would be amazing absolutely no honestly thanks boys appreciate it it was a great chat and uh yeah look forward to more and uh seeing this come out Absolutely. Um, and make sure you're following us on social media. That's uh, Front PG Football on Twitter and Instagram, Front Page Football on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, uh, TikTok, Threads. Cody, have I missed anything else? Oh, of course, the website, frontpagefootball.net. Make sure you check out all our articles um, as well, all our coverage of the game here in Australia. Um, Mitch, once again, thank you very much. And uh, that's all for this episode of the podcast. Until next time, it's bye for now.